0: Oh, 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 Thank you. The top, Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing for Alberta, September 8th, 2021. We are live streaming of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in our territory of 48 different First Nations and the unseen Today's conversation is being shared in ASL difficulties, both ASL and closed caption. Will be eight to ensure completely accurate access. Station for the public is being shared on YouTube. We are hopeful that this will increase the accessibility of, of our briefings. The Protect Our Province COVID 19 briefing is a regular panel we'll endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID 19 from the media. The views of... Of our panelists are the origins they may be affiliated with. We have Clintons attempting to ensure that everyone in the collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19
1: in Alberta as possible. In addition to our regular COVID-19 analysis for Alberta, we will focus today's briefing on the current capacity of Alberta's healthcare system why we as citizens should be concerned, and how this wave is different. We will also take questions from the media and viewers. Back with us today, we have Edmonton-based infectious disease clinician, Dr. Schwartz, Dr. Vi Pond, Calgary emergency room physician, and Dr. Bakshi, Edmonton internal medicine doctor who has been involved in the COVID-19 unit planning and response for the last 18 months. Joining us today for the first time, we have PhD candidate Ann Booker, an oncology and palliative care nurse practitioner. COVID-19 immunizer, and the President of the Canadian Nurses of Oncology. Dr. Paul Parks, Emergency Room Physician, Medicine Hat Regional Hospital, and President of the Section of Emergency Medicine with the AMA. And Dr. Markland, an intensive care physician and kidney doctor, working in an inner-city hospital with intra-teaching
0: and opiate harm reduction. We will begin with an overview of COVID-19 in Alberta from Dr. Schwartz.
2: So thank you so much uh, for the introduction. So um, I'm just going to take a step back and and just provide some commentary on um, what we've seen over the last few days uh, since the the announcements on Friday. So again, my name is Elon Schwartz. I'm an infectious disease physician here in Edmonton um, at the University of Alberta. So uh, today's Protect Our Province um, briefing is an extremely timely and important one. We're gonna be focusing on Healthcare capacity, which is a concept that is really easily misunderstood and really uh, easily misconstrued for political purposes, and which it lies at the very heart of uh, any conversation um, regarding the healthcare system. So, in the last few weeks, we've seen unimpeded exponential growth of the virus um, throughout the province. And more concerningly, we've seen a, a, a concomitant increase in hospitalizations and in ICU admissions. And so after weeks and weeks of cases soaring and uh, nothing but deafening silence from our leaders, the situation really has come to a boiling point. Um, It took until Friday, uh, September 3rd, when Alberta ICUs were really on the brink of capacity with 95 percent of ICU beds occupied before the government reared its its head and 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 made some uh, pronouncements. So exactly what. Actions were um, implemented on Friday. So, the first is that they announced an incentive program to pay unvaccinated Albertans $100 to get vaccinated. So, this has resulted, uh, we now know, over um, the first three days, in a 15% increase in vaccination. And so, to put this into context, other um, provinces that have implemented vaccine passports, or in other words, requiring vaccination in order to to go about and do things where there's large numbers of people, um, those uh, provinces have seen an uptick of over 200% in the few days after um, announcement. So really, this is a a paltry increase, and in fact, the true effect is probably even lower because this was also around the same time that the Alberta Health Services and the City of Calgary announced uh, mandates for vaccination for their employees. So really, this hasn't had a very big effect, which is is not surprising, given that vaccine hesitancy is a very complicated issue, and so it's unlikely to be adequately addressed by sprinkling a little bit of money on the problem. So, secondly, the government announced some measures aimed at decreasing uh, transmission in the short term. So, the first one is that there is a mask mandate that was implemented across the province, and this is something that. Uh, a lot of advocates, including myself, have been calling for. But as with everything, the devil is in the details. And the fact is there were so many exceptions here that the um, potential effectiveness of this measure was severely hampered. So, for example, the mask mandate doesn't apply to uh, to schools where we have large numbers of children from across the province coming together um, as they started school last week, uh, sitting in close proximity for several hours a day, often with poor ventilation and inexplicably it doesn't apply to places of worship like churches where people are not only in close proximity but also singing and we know that this is um, associated with a very uh, efficient transmission um, of of the virus Um, the second step is to stop selling alcohol at 10 pm and so to think that this might have an effect against um the delta virus is really magical thinking uh or deranged thinking so covid is not a vampire it does not only come out at nighttime after 10 p.m so it makes no sense that this would somehow um prevent infections after 10 p.m uh and not before 10 p.m when when a crowd in a a restaurant or a bar is packed and so not only that but we know that it has been uh, unfairly implemented across the province. There have been four rodeos that were granted exceptions. Um, and so we know you know, these uh, belie the fact that this is much more of a political ploy than it was a meaningful um, public health intervention. And in fact, it would be better for uh, reducing transmission, for in, improving the economy, and for increasing uptake of vaccines if all these establishments were kept open, allowed to, to function as normal, but in order to access them, you had to be vaccinated, or in other words, a vaccine passport. So uh, finally, it's recommended that unvaccinated people limited their gatherings. And of course, I think we could toss this out the window. We already know that this is a group of people that have been uh, hesitant to accept public health advice, and so we have no reason to accept uh, or expect that they're going to be abiding by this this rule. So, um, you know, although we're happy that there has been some action in actuality these efforts are all but meaningless and in fact i would argue that they are worse than doing nothing at all because now it's going to delay the government from taking more definitive action for at least two weeks so um, it's going to be a, a while before the uh the, the premier and uh, the chief medical officer of health would will be willing to step back and accept that these actions have failed to uh, meaningfully curb uh, transmission and Uh, By that point, we're going to be in dire, dire trouble in the ICUs. And so that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. um, Without further ado, I'm going to throw it back to um, Michelle, but I look forward to further discussion.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Schwartz. I am going to pass things over to Dr. Vipon to give us a look at the weekend's numbers.
3: Hey, everybody, Uh, as you may know, the numbers were delayed today. They're normally released at 3.30. And there was a mysterious post at around 3.30 that they will not be coming. Um, I suspect they'll be coming around 5.01 if I had to make a guess. Um, But let's look at uh, what's happened over the last uh, over the weekend. Um, We had four days of numbers, so I'm going to try and just consolidate everything. The seven day average right now is 1,292 cases per day. That's a 23.8% increase week over week um, from the previous uh, Monday, which was at 1,044. The doubling time is around 16.5 days, and that's uh, a a little slower than in the past. Uh, It used to be around 14 days last week. So that's uh, uh, slightly positive, but it's really important to recognize that exponential growth, The the steepness of the curve makes uh, uh, is important to recognize, but it doesn't make things um, go away. Even if it's a 16 day doubling time, that just means a slightly slower exponential increase. Um, Positivity uh, hovering around 12%, anywhere from 12.87% as a high on Friday to 11.09% on Sunday. Um, And those are all increased uh, week over week. and so that just means we're missing a lot of cases. Delta continues to dominate um, somewhere between 90 and 95 percent of all the daily cases. We actually hit a record on August 30th with 95.3 percent of the cases that day being Delta. So it's just squeezing everything out. Hospitalizations. I'm I'm just going to say that there's been some very massive revisions of the numbers. I'll give you one example, um, uh, just to show to show you. So if you look at the curve for the hospitalizations, it looks like it's flattening. I fully expect that curve to uh, to go back to its uh, previous slope um, once the revisions from the weekend come. And we've seen that previously with weekends and especially long weekends. But yeah, if we look at last Monday, the inpatients. Um, when they were first reported were 325 um, and when they uh, uh, yesterday they were announced that last monday's was 346. so that single day uh, had a revision of um, of uh, over um, 20, 20 patients so that's the kind of revisions we're seeing on the inpatients i can tell you that if we're calculating um, week over week if we just take friday as probably our very best number um the week over week increase uh for inpatients was 55% which is incredibly a uh, scary rise ICU numbers have generally been more reliable um and we uh were at 1 um 37 on monday and that's a uh increase from Monday to Monday. Again, um, uh, very frightening um, increase there. Uh, Finally, I just want to um, make note of the uh, incredible number of deaths that were announced over the weekend. There were 17 on averaging about four a day. Uh, And this is um, what we're seeing now is more sustained uh, deaths. And every single one of those lives had a family every single one of those lives had loved ones that are missing them Um, and every one of those lives likely would not have been lost if they lived in a jurisdiction like nova scotia which is declared COVID zero so these in my mind are all preventable deaths that is my report for today and uh uh, keep an eye out on my twitter once the uh, numbers are announced at 501 today we'll we'll uh post the numbers for yesterday. Thank
1: you very much, Dr. Vipond. I would like to reintroduce Dr. Bakshi to share with Albertans the patient's journey and what challenges they're currently going through in our system. Welcome back.
4: Thanks, Michelle. Um, uh, So, as Michelle mentioned, I'm going to be talking about patient journey and just a little background. I work as an internal medicine physician uh, and worked uh, heavily on the planning of the COVID unit uh, at my hospital. And so, we have seen what uh, COVID capacity and what COVID planning looks like over the last 18 to 19 months, including what that looks like for disbursement of uh, other patients. And so, when we talk about increasing capacity in a hospital and we'll hear things in the media about adding beds and adding surge capacity, uh, we have to remember that it's not as simple as just adding a physical bed. Uh, we, I think that oversimplifies what a hospital actually looks like and what it means to add extra patients to an infrastructure that is only meant to handle a certain num- number of patients. We also need to remember that when we're talking about COVID-19 and patients who are coming with suspected COVID-19, they require isolation space. This means private rooms that can be on contact and droplet precautions uh, away from other patients. And in hospitals across the province where the infrastructure is older, we don't have the amount of isolation space that we require to keep up with the load of patients that are coming in with suspected or or confirmed COVID. And so over the last 18 months, we've had to be very creative within our hospitals in where we can move patients to, what units we need to displace, what procedures we need to cancel that, so we can take over those units. And what has happened is that we've not only removed geographic clothing, which is keeping patients in one area for efficiency of care, we've also increased the load that each individual person in the healthcare system has to care for. Um, and so with that, I'd ask Michelle if we can bring up the slides. And we can go to the next slide. So I'm gonna just simply talk about what a patient journey looks like. And this is regardless uh, if they have COVID or not, but this is a patient currently who would come to an Alberta hospital. So initially they may call 911, uh, depending on what the complaint is. And when they call 911, the EMS and the paramedics will arrive to assist the patient. And it can be upwards of two to four paramedics that come depending on what the complaint is. Once the patient arrives to the emergency room, they are first screened by a COVID screener prior to going into the hospital. The patient is then assessed by the triage nurse who does the vital signs, who assesses the patient for why they are there and uh, assigns uh, triage uh, numbers based on acuity of what's, what they're seeing. The next is that an admission clerk will check the patient in. So they will be the ones that take your healthcare card, uh, put in the information and review your demographics, make sure they have your emergency contact Typically at that point, the patient is then either in the waiting room with the EMS and the paramedics or put into an emergency room right away. Next comes the emergency room assessment where an emergency room nurse or nurses will begin the clinical workup and quick assessment. So they will assess the patient whether they need an IV, blood draw, wound care, ECG. If there is concern about acute deterioration, they will get the physician and the support services involved right away. Next, the ER physician or physicians, depending on the situation, will assess the patient, order necessary investigations and therapeutics. And the unit clerk or clerks will enter the orders, process orders, and the phone the various departments that need to get involved to review this patient. Next slide. Now there's still an emergency room. The patient will then have to go for their various tests. So if you've been in an emergency room, you know, you may need to go for a chest X-ray or a CT scan. So there's a Porter that will arrive and will escort you in your bed to diagnostic imaging and to other various locations for your investigations. Once you're in diagnostic imaging, the DI technician will perform the imaging for the patient. And then a radiologist will review and report on this and call the emergency room with the results. You will also have lab techs who will assist with lab draws, respiratory therapists that get involved if you have a breathing or oxygenation problem, and pharmacy is continuously involved in sending appropriate medications for the patient in eMERGE. If it's determined that you need to be admitted to the hospital, then the emergency room physician will consult the medical or surgical service that is appropriate for hospital admission. This can be any number of folks on that team, from a resident, a student, attending physician, who will come and assess the patient and complete admission orders. These orders are then processed again by the same unit clerk and need to be uh, looked after by the emergency room nurses until a bed is available in on the inpatient ward. Just as a note, the above team that is doing these admission orders is often also looking at thir- looking after 30 to 60 patients on the ward, as well as tending to ward emergencies. Now that the patient that you've been admitted to the hospital, the porters will once again arrive to the emergency room and they will take you to your inpatient room it- unit. Once you're on your inpatient unit, you are greeted by the unit clerk who will process the orders that are written by the admitting team, by the bedside nurse or nurses who are doing the admission and intake, and the healthcare aides who are help getting you comfortable in your space. A pharmacy member, pharmacy team member will meet you uh, and review your home medications, ensure safe medication administration to the ward. Next slide. During your hospital stay, the ward physician team will continue to round on you daily, meet with you, your family, uh, go over orders, order investigations, and depending on what you are in hospital for, you may also have a trip to the operating room, which will require our nurses, anesthesia, clerks, or our techs to be involved in your care as well. You may require consultant physician teams to help with a number of complex medical conditions as well. During this time, the primary team will also identify what allied health needs you need. Allied health could be anywhere from physiotherapists, therapy assistants, occupational therapists and assistants, uh, speech language pathology, social work, dietitian, transition coordinator, wound care nurse, spiritual care, respiratory therapist, nurse educator, and food services. So, a lot of people are involved in the day to day care of this patient. If there is an unfortunate situation where you, know, you deteriorate and require escalation of therapy, you may be visited by the rapid response or emergency response team, which can consist of an ICU nurse, a respiratory therapist, as well as the ICU physician and fellows and residents. Next slide. Uh, hopefully we are able to discharge you home in a stable uh, condition. And if you are going to be going home, you'll be probably met by the transition services or transition coordinator. Sometimes they're called discharge coordinators. Social work, you will also have liaison with home care and community service to ensure that the discharge is safe. And we also don't wanna forget environmental services who are critical to each step of this journey. So when you are leaving each area of the hospital, environmental services make sure that the room is completely cleaned, decontaminated, and ready for the next patient to come in. So why did I talk about this patient journey? Because I think it's very, very important when we talk about hospital capacity, it's not just a bed for a single patient you can see that some patients may need all of those people that I just uh, talked about to make sure that their stay is safe, appropriate, and healthy. Human resources are an important component of hospital capacity, and on average, you need four nurses per bed to make the bed active, meaning that for a bed to be something that we can use, you need to have the number of staff uh, available to be able to uh, make that bed active. That's just nursing, and we talk about all of the other people that are involved in the care. And so I think when we talk about where we at right now, where we are right now, and we talk about how we are overwhelmed and over capacity, it is because the human resources piece of it is not something that we can scale up easily. And right now we are not even operating at the baseline human resource capacity that we need for the number of patients that we need. This is due to burnout. This is due to uh, people being redeployed elsewhere. And so. Right now, to be able to upscale to what we need to meet the volume of admissions that we're seeing, we just do not have the people. What this will end up looking like is increasing nursing to patient ratios, uh, unable to staff certain units, closure and cancellations of more procedures. Thank you, Michelle.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Bakshi. Next, I would like to bring on Dr. Parks. Um, It is the first time that our panel has had a physician from the South Zone. I'm very excited about this, actually. Dr. Parks is here to share his expertise on how access block, which I can honestly tell you, I am not entirely certain what that means, um, affects all Albertans. Dr. Parks, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Hi there. Uh, so yeah i'm a merged physician down in medicine at regional hospital uh, i worked up at the u of a for a long time as well so i know the academic centers and the regional centers uh, but i, I want to kind of briefly just give a bit of an overview of why we're all talking about access block what that is and, and icu capacity why you're hearing a lot about that and really the key piece is that all of those you just saw a patient journey and how many connected pieces there are for a patient to go through the acute care system while all of those pieces are so intertwined and interconnected in the acute healthcare system that if you affect one piece it will trickle down and affect multiple other pieces and so one of the big reasons in COVID-19 that you care keep hearing about um, ICU capacity as, as an example and then emerge overcrowding as a trickle from that is that uh, when, IC, when ICUs get full the sick patients have to stay in the eMERGE department for longer because they can't get up there or when the wards get full they have to stay in the eMERGE departments for longer and so then um, all those undifferentiated people in the waiting room have to wait longer in order so that they can get uh, into the emergency department and get care and one of the things that happens a lot is if you have sick patients that aren't in the right place at the right time, so a a critically ill ICU patient, for example, that's in the Emerge department, our Emerge departments are often um, staffed to have uh, one to four nursing care, for example, meaning a nurse might take care of four patients at a time uh, or one to six or so a lot of times when you have a one to one really sick patient, that really affects how the Emerge can flow. Um, and and how overcrowded that crowded that becomes because we couldn't get those sick patients into the hospital or up into the ICU. And then why is it called access block? Well, because when the emergency departments get difficult like that, where we can't see people in a timely manner, then you have to start talking about Um, you know, kind of disaster planning type things where you have to end up cancelling elective surgery so you can increase capacity or you have to cancel endoscopy and cancer care and, you know, even sometimes even pediatric care uh, because the nurses and pediatrics have to be repurposed to go take care of COVID patients. So it trickles all the way through and each one becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. And so, and then on top of that, you will also have when the Emerge Departments and the bigger centers are full, then the regional centers, and then down the rural centers, they can't take uh, care of, t- can't uh, transport their sick patients from the smaller centers into, the, into say Medicine Hat. So we may get someone from Brooks or, or smaller, they can't do that anymore um and so that impacts the care in those in those rural areas and it may take away family physicians that have to take care of the sick patients there so that access block is 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 kind of describing how interconnected everything is so that one piece like our ICUs overfilling with critically ill covid patients and non-covid patients will impact lots of patients uh, throughout the entire system and so just to give everyone a real quick picture, if I picture it, a typical emerge department of 40 beds and every one of those beds has a patient in it right now, and there's say 20, 30 patients in the waiting room waiting to be seen, everyone can picture that if they've been into an emergence. So then you take a sick patient who has COVID who needs to go on a breathing machine, um, but the hospital's full and the ICUs are full. Well, that will take uh that will take some of the eMERGE staff and the team and all those people that were mentioned before, uh, occupy a lot of their time, but then add in all of a sudden now you have that next uh, motor vehicle collision and really sick trauma patient that has to come in and be put on a breathing machine and, and life support and maybe be stabilized and sent to the emergency department all of a sudden now you you see that that's gonna cycle where if we can't get those patients stabilized and out to the right places, it's gonna take up more resources so that people have to wait longer and longer in the waiting room. And then of course, where that trickles out, which is you can think now that the small emergency doc or family doc that's working in a really small community has a really sick patient with COVID that's deteriorating and wants to transfer that patient into the busy eMERGE department. And so space has to be made to bring that patient in from a rural area. Transport has to be organized provincially. We have to look where should it go. All of those pieces are so interconnected that that's why you are seeing emergency physicians like myself and internal medicine specialists and anybody that's really working in the acute care system why we're so concerned about what's happening with things like our ICU capacity and our hospital capacity, and not just numbers, not just how many beds can be made with surge capacity, but with how many people can staff them. Because what you're gonna hear about in the next piece too, is that in order to go from our current ICU capacity, say of 173 beds being our baseline, all of our ICU beds in the the province without going over Surging and overcapacity. In order to bump that up, so that we're at the two hundred and one, two hundred and five, two hundred and ten, whatever we are now, we have to repurpose pay, uh, nurses and staff and RTS and pull them from other areas uh, and bring them into critical care where they may not be as comfortable. Uh, but that that ends up rippling a rippling effect back where it affects access to things like. I said endoscopy surgeries are canceled, cancer care is canceled. Um, A lot of those are delayed. Sorry, but uh, those effects just keep getting amplified and amplified. So the absolute worst case scenario is if we keep going on without a circuit breaker and we don't get some help where we decrease those numbers of admissions and the numbers of critically ill people in in our ICUs, as an example, I just gave a quick brief overview of how everyone can picture, even if you're a patient that's gonna have medical issues that are not COVID related, you're going to probably experience access block in some form. Uh, It's gonna be harder to get into your family doctor, it's gonna be longer waits to get into your specialist, longer waits to get into the emerge, and and so on and so forth. So I, I think that's just in a kind of nutshell, a bit of a primer of why, we're also concerned and and talking about hospital capacity, acute care capacity, ICU capacity, and then why the emerge is kind of the canary in the coal mine um, as to when the system isn't functioning because of the difficulties uh, we see it firsthand, and and it all kind of backs up into the emerge.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Parks, for sharing your perspective with us today. Um, frankly, just terrifying times. Terrifying times. Um, Our next speaker is a perspective that we haven't gotten to hear yet on um, any of our briefings and I am so thankful that they are joining us today. Um, I would like to reintroduce you all to PhD candidate Rayanne Booker, an oncology and palliative care nurse practitioner and recently a COVID-19 immunizer. Thank you so very much for joining us, Rayanne.
6: Well thanks very much Michelle and uh, thanks also to Randy Um, and thanks to everyone who's tuned in today and all who continue to protect our province. Um, Michelle, if you're able to get the slides up that'd be great. So not to sound like a broken record but I just wanted to remind everyone that we are already over capacity in terms of ICU beds. Um, so credit to Ziyef Faisal for these fantastic graphs. Uh, you can see here that uh, currently we've got 201 people in ICUs across the province and our baseline ICU capacity is approximately 173 beds. Um, the message from Alberta Health in recent days has been that we are hovering around 87 percent capacity in ICU. Um, but you can see from this graph we're already over uh, capacity. And if you can um, uh, advance to the next graph, please, Michelle. Perfect. Um, so here's another graph to show where we might be in just a week's time. The curve, It's the linear uh, vertical line here. Uh, not linear, sorry, a vertical line almost. Um, the, it's depicting what may happen uh, with COVID only. So so this line right here is showing what's happening with COVID. Uh, it's not capturing any of the other reasons why people might need IC, ICU care. And while it is possible to scale up capacity, um, as Dr. Bakshi and uh, Dr. Parks have already discussed, it may come at a cost. Next slide, please. So for some context, this report uh, from the Canadian Institute for Health Information or CIHI on ICU care in Canada was published in 2016. These tables show the top 10 medical and surgical conditions among ICU patients. You can see that there are a number of respiratory and cardiac conditions and procedures, and some types of surgeries that people with certain types of cancers might undergo. Notably missing from the tables, of course, is COVID. Uh, But I just wanna make the point that there are many other reasons why someone might require ICU care, and these reasons haven't stopped during the pandemic. Next slide, please. So, for further context, the average length of stay in ICU in 2016 Canada-wide was approximately three days, and approximately 33% of those in ICU required mechanical ventilation. Next slide, please. This report by Katynette was published just a few weeks ago on August 26, and includes data from January 2020 to March 2021. It's important to clarify that these numbers are reflective of what was happening before the fourth wave, so before Delta. You can see from this table that the average length of stay in hospital in Alberta was approximately 15 days. The report also notes that, Canada wide, of those who required hospitalization, more than one in five needed ICU care. Next slide, please. And for those who required ICU care in Alberta, the average length of stay in ICU ICU was approximately 12 days, compared to approximately 3 days in 2016. You can also see that people who needed ICU care were in hospital, on average, for about 25 days total. Also in Alberta, 64.5% of those in ICU required ventilation, again, compared to approximately 33% in 2016. The length of stay in hospitals and in ICUs will continue to impact healthcare capacity. Patients who are ventilated are likely to have longer hospital stays and more complex care requirements even after discharge. The American Thoracic Society reported in 2015 that critically ill patients who have been mechanically ventilated for more than seven days are at greatly increased risk for functional impairment and mortality at one year following discharge from the ICU. Regarding costs, and I hate to talk about costs at a time like this, but I think it's relevant because the resources we have in our healthcare system are finite. Uh, The average estimated cost of a hospital stay for COVID-19 is around $23,000 and more than $50,000 for ICU stays, please. So in terms of nursing capacity, According to the 2019-2020 College and Association of Registered Nurses of Alberta Annual Report, there were approximately 38,000 RNs in Alberta. Of these, there are roughly 1,350 critical care nurses. Even before the pandemic began, many parts of Canada were already dealing with a nursing shortage. And the thought that a nurse is a nurse is a nurse couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to ICU. ICU nurses are highly specialized and skilled. Don't get me wrong, nurses have been stepping up throughout this pandemic. I know many nurses who've been working as nurse immunizers, me included, (laughs) helping with contact tracing or working in long-term care facilities, even facilities with COVID-19 outbreaks. But working in ICU is different. Personally, I'm not sure how useful I would be in an ICU. I worry that I would actually add to the workload of ICU nurses. The province plans to bring in nurses from other jurisdictions and reportedly is paying top dollar medscape recently shared a cautionary tale from the us where nurses are quitting their regular jobs in favor of travel nursing jobs where they're often paid far more than their their regular pay this has led to some tense working environments where travel nurses working alongside regular nurses are sometimes paid more than double what the regular unit nurses make imagine how well this will go over in alberta where nurses are facing imminent wage rollbacks This strategy is likely to also contribute substantially to substantially increase costs to our system for example in a hospital in georgia a respiratory therapist was hired through an agency to replace a respiratory therapist who accepted a travel position the replacement came from the same hospital where the first respiratory therapist had just gone to work and basically the two hospitals swapped respiratory therapists but at double the cost next slide please uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the impact of moral distress and moral injury that have become pervasive and I would say even ubiquitous in healthcare these days, irrespective of a practice setting, working conditions, being short staffed, working in high acuity, working with high acuity and very sick patients, witnessing patients dying alone, the impact of visitor restrictions, it's not, not just impacting staff and critical care. Many of us feel moral distress, knowing that we cannot provide the care that we want to provide and that patients and their loved ones deserve. Next slide, please. We talk about the numbers, the COVID-19 numbers, the number of people in hospital or ICU, the number of ICU beds. Some people are good with numbers and I'm really grateful for those people. I'm good with faces and names and the stories behind the faces and names. Some of you may have seen this Twitter thread on Friday or you may have caught the interview with Ryan Jesperson yesterday. For those of you who don't know her story, Julie Rohr is a young mother who has end stage cancer. She has given me permission to share her story in these photos. She tweeted on Friday. Hi, Alberta. I'm an end stage cancer patient dealing with some of the most difficult decisions I'll ever make. I have to get my lung drained in order to breathe. Doc wants me to come to a hospital ER to do the procedure, but hospital ERs have COVID outbreaks. Uh, Can you advance, please? I'm trapped. If I get Delta, these lungs are done for. They wouldn't even treat based on my condition. Do you see how this works? COVID vaccine deniers are getting my bed, the one I need to survive a little longer with my children and puppy. Here they are. Next slide, please. Healthcare capacity is not only about COVID, and these are Julie's parents and her beautiful family. A full hospital means that someone who gets in a car accident might not might have to be transported to the next nearest hospital and may lose precious time. That might mean the difference between life and death. A full hospital means that people with treatable, even curable conditions may not receive the timely care they need. Please get vaccinated. Please continue to mask. Please limit gatherings and please always be kind. Thanks.
1: Thank you very much, Nurse Booker, for sharing all of that with us today. Um, I cannot begin to rationalize or imagine the dissatisfaction, disillusionment, discomfort every single nurse in this province is feeling at this moment in time. And I think it has been really valuable for all of us and everyone at home to have a look at that perspective. So thank you so very much. It is with great pleasure that before we go to a couple of questions, I get to introduce Dr. Markland. We haven't had the opportunity today to hear from an ICU physician, but we've heard a lot about ICUs. Um, How's it going over there, Dr. Markland?
7: Hi, uh, we uh, were living every day like it was our best one. <laughs> uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Dr. Brooks for uh, some of the insight into what's going on in ICU. I I come uh, a little unprepared. We've been busy. Uh, I had some great slides, but most of them. Uh, Bring up topics that are a little painful. The numbers are pretty similar, and uh, what some of the things that you'll see uh, with respect to ICU capacity, uh, we tend to be the highest resourced uh, part of the hospital. Uh, and as a result, uh, when ICU flexes up, everybody else has to donate uh, their energy and resources to us. Uh, in the past several waves, that was a lot easier because uh, we had goodwill, and we also had. Uh, the reassurance that this would go away with vaccinations, we had very clear direction that way. Uh, we also had great moral imperative, these these nurses uh, and the assistance that they got from uh, all of our allied health care professionals. We're spectacular people. We're really in it to win it. Uh, this is a bit of a different situation. And so quite literally, when people ask us how we're doing, we're a little more vague about that because the direction here is much more vague. You'll see ICU numbers fluctuate. We are getting beds, let me assure you. Uh, It's also really important to separate Alberta Health, which is the political division that uh, distributes funds, and Alberta Health Services, which is a group of healthcare professionals, mostly made up of doctors and nurses who uh, are now in managerial roles, who truly and heartfeltly are trying to keep this system running. Um, And uh, one of the challenges I think we are also seeing is that Through these ways, we've lost some very good management along the way. Uh, I work with some spectacular individuals who, besides doing critical care work, are trying to make arrangements to keep this whole system running. So um, I I enjoy their company and I think they do great work. Uh, We have added capacity. We continue to do so. Again, our biggest challenge, as Dr. Bakshi said, is human resources. Uh, And interestingly, the additional challenge that we have this year is we've lost a lot of our senior staff. So when we took staff from other parts of the hospital, uh, we had senior staff to train them. That's less of a case now. Um, We always have a great environment. Um, I would say that we suffer the least uh, from from burnout, but we are we are having it. Um, We will continue to push forward, we will continue to do these things. But my role here, again, is to advocate because this is not a resource um, that we can expand infinitely. And in fact, I think there's very little understanding from the government's perspective about how much work it is. When you talk about resource blocking, uh, we is part of the reason that you see less ICU admissions are that uh, to open other beds for COVID, we have shut down ancillary services. So I think you'll have seen a lot of tweets out there about people who aren't getting their quote-unquote elective brain surgeries for tumors uh, and uh, screenings for cancers. Uh, that when you don't look for things, you don't find them, you don't do these operations. and So our capacity has been buffered somewhat because we've reduced surgical capacity. Uh, you can do this in the short time, but in the long term, it will bite you. You'll we'll see later presentations of diseases that were previously curable. Uh, again, uh, the other capacity issue is the extremely uh, resource-intensive therapy is what we call ECMO, which is a form of life support that, uh, when the lungs completely fail, require a heart-lung bypass machine. And those are very, very limited resources, reserved for only um, people who have the worst disease and still, simultaneously and somewhat contradictorily, the best prognosis. Um, and uh, that is limited to uh, five to ten machines who can, that can support people when they're not safe and we've been utilizing that. Uh, I think in summary uh, we can't do this alone. Uh, part of our group of advocacy is to, to look for ways of reducing admissions and to do that requires both vaccine passports and a circuit breaker and thank you for your time. I look forward to not seeing you
1: I echo that, Dr. Markland. Um, Thank you so very much for being with us today. It's really important to all of us at Protect Our Province Alberta to have an array of voices joining us in these conversations. Um, It can't be about one human's narrative. So having the opportunity to have spent the last 43 minutes with so many fantastic professionals is truly, I think, a blessing for everyone in Alberta. Um, I'm going to bring everybody on screen now so we can open the floor for a question. A reminder that with us today we have Dr. Vi Pond, Dr. Markland, who is up on the screen already, Dr. Bakshi, Ray Ann Booker, Dr. Schwartz, Dr. Parks. Welcome back, everybody. Um, I would like to take this opportunity to take a question from Morgan Black from Global News Edmonton.
8: Hi, everyone, Morgan, can you hear me? You are live. Yes, we can. Thank you very much. Jump the gun, pardon me. Um, lots, lots of doctors to choose from for the question, so whoever would like to take it. Um, so we've seen significantly higher positivity rates in the last few weeks, 10%, 12%. Um, I believe Dr. Vipon said earlier that that indicates that a number of cases are being missed and of course we know that hospital numbers are a legging indicator um so what does that mean then in the next few weeks does that indicate that we will see a larger presence than anticipated in the icu based on missing these these cases uh,
3: maybe i can take that since it's uh, about the numbers so the who the world health organization suggests that five uh, percent is the level of positivity where you can start to think about relaxing restrictions. Anything above that means your contact tracing and your um, you're just missing a lot of, of community cases. And, and that certainly seems to be the case uh, I think it's important to point out that uh, Alberta Health Services explicitly on their website says they are no longer doing any contact tracing and we are no longer testing any asymptomatic people. So that's one of the reasons why we have this higher positivity in the past. And uh, up until mid August, if you were to test positive, the contact tracing would go back through the system, through, through your history, find out who you've been hanging out with. Um, contact those people, encourage them to get tested, even if they were asymptomatic. Um, and and do some uh, contact uh, uh, quarantining. But now we're not doing any of that. So it, it's not surprising at all that those positivity rates are are climbing and that the majority of our cases now uh, have an unknown uh, um, source of of acquiring the vac- uh, the uh, the uh, virus. So uh, yeah, this is this is what happens when you uh, when your healthcare care system starts to fall apart.
8: And sorry, so just to clarify, that would indicate that we will continue to see higher numbers than perhaps the this the cases that are in now would indicate
3: it's part of the part of the package. And so far we've seen nothing hap- come from the government that would suggest that uh, we are going to have any mitigation measures that are going to bend the curve. So uh, I think um, maybe somebody else wants to speak in on this, but I, I fully expect ongoing exponential growth until we actually get good. Um, uh, good mitigation measures, adequate mitigation measures, maybe.
1: Would anyone else like to supplement Dr. Vipon's answer? Dr. Schwartz.
2: Thanks. Yeah. So I, w- I would just say that we're at the phase now where the, the number of cases really isn't important. Um, we've blown right past that the number of cases, as Dr. Vipon said, is, uh, an early indicator and we are now in late stage disease. Um, you know, once the patients are, are being admitted to the hospital, once they're admitted to the ICU and once the ICU starts to fill up, that's kind of, um, you know, curtains. So, so I think that we don't need to focus too much on the number of cases. What we really need to be focused on is the number of admissions and the number of, of ICU beds, not just, um, among the kind of, denominator that continues to expand uh at will um but but the the, the realistic number which you know as, as dr bakshi and um and nurse booker explained is very much limited by uh by person power and so and you know anything we go forward past uh the number that we're at now we're, we're really kind of into the into the thick things
8: Morgan,
1: do you have a follow-up?
8: I do, and i a little bit off-topic then, going back to kind of hospital capacity. So we know that increased beds, you need increased bodies, and then that leads to the cancellation of more surgeries, higher patient ratio. Um, what comes after that? What's the next indicator of, of a hospital under stress?
4: I can take that one, maybe. Um, so as we get to more staffing ratios, we have to look at alternate uh, care models. So how can we uh, still provide care for patients um, and and maybe untraditionally, which we're already kind of doing by offloading into different departments and different divisions. Uh, some of those things may look like offsite care. So we've talked about um, you know, the K clinic in Edmonton, other places, uh, the tent at, at Peter Lougheed, those are the type of scenarios where we'll have to start looking at, can we move uh, our more stable patients out to areas that traditionally we wouldn't provide hospital care and free up some space in the hospital. Um, and if we, if we expand to that and we run out of space there, uh, I truly don't actually know what the next step is, except that we have to start looking at, are we providing care that we can, can do in the hospital to the right patients?
5: Yeah, if I if I can add, uh, so I think the other part you have to think about that we hope we don't ever get to is critical triage. Uh, So triage is something I didn't touch on too much in terms of that's trying to sort out what's the next patients to see uh, and the next patient to care for and what resources to use for them. We do have a policy developed that may look at making decisions where if our resources are overwhelmed we'll have to choose that some people may not get the critical care or the extended care uh, that they would have got if the system wasn't overwhelmed um, but just to put it in perspective too i hope we never care and we're all working so we don't. Uh, but some of those resource de- decisions are difficult already in some of the regional centers and smaller centers, for example, when a number of patients come in, there have already been decisions about who gets the OptiFlow, which is a higher flow oxygen, um, when a when hospital only has a certain number of them. Uh, thankfully, we've been able to temporize and get people to other places before things get, um, get uh, difficult. But those kind of decisions are already facing us a little bit, um, and then of course now if we're hearing things about oxygen shortages or some of those medicine supplies now, there are some medicines that we use for COVID that are in shortage. So. Uh, I think we hope we never get to critical triage, but there, with, with increasing numbers and increasing difficulty with capacity, uh, we will be, as a system, have, uh, forced to have to make some of those uh, very difficult triage de- decisions.
1: Morgan, do you feel like that answers your question?
8: Yes, that was very thorough. Everyone, thank you so much for taking my question.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. Before we say goodbye for today, um, the one question that I wanted to take from our viewers, there have been many, um, but this one came up a lot, was how close are we to needing those field hospitals again? From the one that was set up at the Butter Dome to the one that was at the Peter Lougheed in Calgary, Do, are they even still there? Are people, where, where are people going to go?
4: Uh, I could take that one as well. Um, And obviously I don't speak for HS and I don't know all of the internal planning that is going on, uh, but I know that uh, we've started preliminary discussions about where are we going to put patients uh, if there's no more space uh, at the end at the hospital. Um, And again, when we talk about that, we often recognize that if we're having trouble staffing our current inpatient units and our inpatient hospitals, we're gonna run into the same problem with staffing uh, these extra spaces in the community. So we may need them and we may have needed them a week ago, Um, but the reality is, is we have to look at where our resources needed the most. Right now, the resources are needed the most in the ICU. Uh, We're working very hard uh, within all the units in the hospital uh, between cancer surgeries and those kinds of things to make sure that the ICU continues to remain, to uh, be able to add capacity to upscale capacity. Um, But I I believe that plans are already being discussed to look at those alternate sites and see how we can staff those. Uh, It's obviously not something that anybody wants to do. uh, And I think it's going to be very challenging to staff those honestly. And so we need to continue to work with how can we work within our capacity in the system.
1: So I guess on a final note, before we say goodbye, I would love to bring you guys up one at a time and one sentence as to how we can help. Um, Even if it happens to be the same sentence out of all six of your mouths, I strongly believe that everybody hears things differently. And the clearer and more transparent we can be, the faster we'll find our way out of this. So I'm just going to bring you up one at a time and give us citizens at home, something, please, that we can do to help you.
6: Thanks. I'll keep my papers away from the mic this time. Sorry about that, everyone. I didn't realize that was an issue. Um, I would say, as I said already, please get vaccinated. Please continue to mask. Please limit gatherings. Please be kind. And if you know of somebody who's vaccine hesitant or has questions, there are lots of great resources. COVID-19 Resources Canada has um, uh, some resources for the vaccine hesitant. So I would direct people to those to encourage them to get vaccinated.
4: Thanks. Uh, I have to echo uh, what Nurse Booker said. I think that if we can continue to be kind, I think that's the number one thing to each other, Uh, work on our friends and families who are are vaccine hesitant. And I think also understanding that by us doing our individual parts, if we're not getting direction from the government, we all at the end of the day have to make the decision for ourselves, for our families, what is safe, what is appropriate for us to be doing. And knowing that the hospital capacity situation is not limited to COVID is for all cause uh, diagnosis, we need to collectively do the right thing, which is avoid large, uh, large gatherings, continue to mask, and get vaccinated.
2: So, <clears throat> uh, we've heard a lot about the, uh, the crunch in the ICU, how, how our system really is under strain. And, and we've also heard to emphasize that this is not just for COVID patients. Of course, it's the COVID patients that are putting the strain on the system, but patients with any sort of ailment, whether surgical or medical trauma, et cetera um that require ICU care are um are are at risk of not being able to receive the the care that we would consider to be standard in this province and so i would um implore everybody obviously this this may not need to be said but you know if ever you wanted to stay out of the ICU this is the time Um, you know if you need hospital care uh, come to the hospital we'll look after you please don't don't put it off don't delay it but don't take unnecessary risks. Stay off the road, off the highways as much as you can. Don't go skydiving or do anything silly. Uh, and um, maybe time to, to, to put away your motorcycle for a little bit.
1: Dr. Markland, you are muted.
7: Sorry, I had to um, buy an ATV, uh, get a 26 or a... Block. Oh, wait a second, it was the other one. Um, no, I think all of these things are common sense. I think this all really works, and this, is a, this these are, are good suggestions. We obviously desperately want to live our lives, um, but this is the time to hold back a little bit. We also need to remember, too, that we're going into fall, and in conjunction with coronavirus, um, there, we have to think about the influenza virus as well. Uh, we're not certain what our flu season is going to be like, uh, but when the flu shot comes around, that is a that is a palpable thing that you can step up for and uh, advocate for with people who may also be vaccine hesitant for that reason as well. So, yeah, those uh, continue masking, um, reduce uh, interactions if possible, still enjoy your family when you're double vaccinated. Yeah, you deserve that. Uh, and uh, let's continue to get through this together.
5: Yeah, I I would echo everything that's been said. I'll add to the component maybe, be if we can all as Albertans think about community and compassion for others, uh, and think about how how our, our actions and choices can really impact a lot of other Albertans, uh, like canceling scheduled surgeries. I didn't even mention that as a resource uh, restriction that we're already doing. A scheduled surgery, someone might have waited eighteen months for a hip replacement that they can't walk on without pain. Um, so, but I, and and you know, I would just extend that to be like what, what you know, wearing masks, getting vaccinated, do those things to help others. Uh, but it also you know maybe try to be a little bit. Um, Uh, Thoughtful about the difficulties that this is probably causing for tons of other peoples and just other Albertans. and just a shout out to all of the healthcare uh, allied professionals that are really struggling and morale is low and fatigue is high. Maybe be kind of patient and kind with them as well.
3: I just want to reinforce that this isn't just a health crisis. This is a political crisis. We are in this situation because of a policy vacuum, because of some decisions that have been made to allow this virus to to run rampant through our not only our our society, but in particular, our school system and our children. Um, And I think for a lot of Albertans, this isn't acceptable. And the only way it's going to change is to Verbalize that displeasure with your political leaders. Um, this needs to happen at the level of the school board, so that if your school boards aren't aren't doing mandatory masking, they they need to know that that's something there's that a the bare minimum for for safe attendance at schools. This needs to be done at the at the provincial level as well. Um, and this is the time, especially if you voted for the ruling party, to let them know that that they their job is to represent you and they, they should do their job and represent the views of the majority of Albertans, which is to stop this wave. Um, every single illness that's happening right now, every single death is would have been preventable had this government acted early uh, with, with good scientifically based measures. And at the same time, every future illness, every future death continues to be preventable. Um, if we act together as a province. So this is a call to pick up your phone and and let your leaders know um, that we deserve better.
1: Thank you all very much for joining us today. Um, this was, I think, one of the most challenging topics that we've talked about so far and exceptionally urgent and timely. Um, at a risk of sounding a little bit like a broken record to some of the things that Dr. Vipon just said. My big takeaways from today are that our healthcare system is in crisis. It is a real and urgent crisis that requires immediate action. So please reach out to all levels of government, school boards, municipal, provincial, federal, and everyone on the campaign trail to let them know that this crisis is still alive and real. COVID-19 is airborne, It is growing exponentially in Alberta and it is clear, it is a clear and present danger to our entire society. And the longer we let this continue, the longer it's going to take to control it. Protect Our Province Alberta is a grassroots initiative made up of a dedicated volunteer team, a volunteer team who have all, who all have full-time plus occupations. Every single human on this screen right now and every single human you can't see, Um, and they are giving everything that they can to bring truthful, timely, concise information to Albertans. But it's very clear to me today, especially that we are not okay. Alberta is not okay. And as a society, we deserve to be receiving this information, this hour that we spent today, the hour that we spent yesterday from our government, clear information that is unobstructed by ideological narratives, factual and practical solutions. And the void of both should not need to be filled by private citizens giving copious quantities of time and financial assistance to ensure that information is accessible to as many Albertans as possible. This is not sustainable. I know that we will sustain. I know that the humans on the screen in front of you will show up and will answer questions and will lose sleep and will try to ensure that everyone in Alberta stays safe because we're a province of folks who are innovative, intelligent, and we are deserving, but I believe we can make the best decisions for ourselves and our families while receiving contradictory information spun to look good from some very narrow perspectives. So please join us again on Friday. Um, Thank you all so much we will have another update on COVID-19 focused on vaccinations. Everything from access to legalities of mandates to passports, everything in between. We had a lot of questions on that today coming up that we didn't bring up in this panel because that will be Friday. Um, As always, if you have any questions on those things or other things, please feel free to pop them into any of the Protect Our Province Alberta social media accounts and we will try to work them into the conversation. Thank you to our panel. Thank you to everyone at home. Again, until next time, remember, stay safe.